Welcome to the Midnight Library, where we delve into the darkest corners of the internet to bring you three spine-tingling creepypastas each episode. So sit back, turn down the lights, and prepare yourself for a journey into the unknown. But be warned, once you enter the Midnight Library, you may never want to leave. Hello, my name is Mitch. I'm here to tell you guys about an experience I had. I don't know if it was paranormal or whatever stupid words people use to describe supernatural phenomena, but after that thing visited me, I believe in that paranormal trash now. A week after I moved in with my brother Edwin after my house was foreclosed, I finished unpacking. Edwin liked the idea of me moving in, since we had not seen each other for ten years, so I was excited too. I soon fell asleep after I moved in. After that first week, I heard rustling noises coming from outside at about one in the morning. I thought it was a raccoon, so I ignored it and tried to fall asleep. The next morning, I told Edwin about it, and he agreed. The next night, however, I thought I heard my window opening and a loud thump, as if something entered my room. I darted up and looked around my room, but I saw nothing. The next morning, Edwin dropped his coffee cup when he saw me. He held up a nearby mirror, and I saw myself. I had a large gash in my left cheek. After I was rushed to the hospital, my doctor told me that I must have been sleepwalking, but then he showed me something that made my blood turn cold. He lifted up my shirt to reveal a sewn-up incision where my kidneys were. I stared into his eyes, mine widening. You somehow lost your left kidney last night, my doctor told me. We don't know how, though. Sorry, Mitch. The next night was my breaking point. Around midnight, I woke up to see a truly horrifying sight. I was staring face to face with a creature with a black hoodie and dark blue mask with no nose or mouth staring down at me. The thing that scared me the most was that it had no eyes, just empty black sockets. The creature also had some black substance dripping from its sockets. I grabbed a camera from the nearby mantle and took a picture. Immediately after taking the shot, the creature lunged at me and tried to claw open my chest to get to my lungs. I stopped it by kicking it in the face. As I ran out of my room, I grabbed my wallet. I would need the money. I ran out of my brother's house into the night. I eventually ended up in the woods near Edwin's house and tripped on a rock. I fell unconscious and woke up in the hospital. My doctor, the same one who treated me before, entered the room. I have good news and bad news, Mitch, my doctor started. The good news is that you had minor injuries and your parents are going to pick you up. I sighed with relief. The bad news is that your brother has been killed by some... thing. Sorry. My parents took me back to Edwin's house to collect my remaining belongings, which I did. Upon entering my room, I was scared, but remained calm. I grabbed my camera and then stopped dead in my tracks. In the hallway leading to my room, I saw Edwin's body and something small lying next to it. I retrieved it up and entered my parents' car, not mentioning Edwin's corpse. I looked at the thing I had picked up and nearly vomited. I was holding my stolen half-eaten kidney with some black substance on it. I saw him again last night. Who? The man. Oh yeah, James chuckled. Same. Oh really? I nervously giggled in response. What did you see? Just the usual, he was just having a good look round, not doing anyone any harm. This had become a running joke between James and I ever since we moved in six months ago. We always kept our bedroom door open a crack during the night so that our cat Tony could wander in and out as he pleased. He hated doors being closed so much. 
For the same reason, we kept the door to the spare bedroom, which was situated directly opposite our room down the hallway, open a crack. The windows in the spare room had no curtains, due to sheer laziness on our part. At night, the light from outside spilled through the windows and illuminated our hallway remarkably bright. I'd read about the human tendency to create faces out of everyday objects and shapes. Facial pareidolia. A dressing gown hanging on the back of a door can easily resemble an ominous figure to the sleep-weary brain in the dead of night. So I wasn't overly concerned when I first woke to see the impression of a shadowy presence looming through the crack in the door. As a frequent sufferer of night terrors, as well as the occasional episode of sleep paralysis, I've long grown used to ignoring things like this, and simply waiting for it to go away. I knew soon I would fall back asleep and by the morning everything would be good and well again. I was undoubtedly shaken, however, when I eventually shared my most recent observations with my husband after a few months of seeing the shadow figure off and on. Instead of brushing it off like usual, his unnerving response was, Oh yeah, I know what you mean, I think I've seen him too. My eyes widened and my veins turned icy. Are you serious? Yeah, I keep waking up in the night and thinking I see someone out in the hallway. It's obviously just the light playing a trick, though. Don't you think that's a bit weird, though? I said, not bothering to hide my anxiety. That we've both seen the same thing? No, don't worry. I shouldn't have said anything. I knew you'd freak out. It's just the light, Adam. The only weird, creepy man you've got to worry about is me. James joked as he reached his arms around me and nuzzled his face into my neck, tickling me and making me giggle. From that point on, sightings of the presence which we nicknamed the man became a very casual joke between us two. Before we put our heads down to sleep, we would make sure the bedroom door wasn't open wider than necessary to let Tony in, so as not to give the man too much of a view of us whilst we slept. When we made love, James would joke about giving the man a good show. These jokes gave me some comfort, although my concerns never truly went away. Before drifting off to sleep, I always gave the crack in the doorway one last look just to make sure there was nothing there. But without fail, whenever I woke up in the middle of the night, as I always did, there he was. The dark shape silently bearing over us, seemingly lying in wait. Even if I didn't dare glance over to see him, I knew he was there. I felt his presence, the sense of being watched, the overwhelming atmosphere of dread, of menace. His ill intent towards us was unmistakable. After a while, I started experiencing more frequent bouts of sleep paralysis. No matter how hard I tried to de-stress before bedtime, or sleep in different positions rather than flat on my back, which often brought on episodes in the past. Several times a week, I started to find myself awake in the middle of the night, my body glued to the bed beneath me, my limbs frozen in place as if they were struck with rigor mortis. As the panic set in, I would become overwhelmed with a sense of foreboding, the adrenaline coursing through my system, hopelessly willing my body to flee. I tried to scream for James, but my mouth wouldn't make a sound. I was mercilessly locked in my own body. As my eyes helplessly flitted around my bedroom, they eventually fixed on the spot near the door that was thick with an unnatural darkness. As my eyes focused, the darkness began to take on the uncanny shape of a humanoid, a towering, sinister entity that emanated hate and malice. As dread flooded my senses, the shape, which was undoubtedly male in its proportions, would slowly make its way over to my side of the bed, hell-bent on my torment as I lay totally helpless. I stared into the inky blackness where its eyes should be, and silently pleaded for release, 
as I felt the impression on the mattress as it mercilessly crept its way across my naked and exposed body, truly vulnerable in every sense to my tormentor. Night after night, as sure as I was that I had found myself truly at the brink of certain death at this apparition's hands, in an instant he would be gone, and I would find myself animated once again, gasping for breath and drenched in an icy sweat. It wasn't long before the painfully familiar anxiety surrounding bedtime once again set in, and I started to become a walking zombie in my waking life, surviving on the bare minimum amount of sleep. My mental health plummeted leaving me unable to cope with life's simplest of tasks. Shortly after these episodes started to occur, James began to suffer with ill health. He was exhausted all the time, despite always being the type of guy who could shut off as soon as his head hit the pillow and stay that way until he was roused by his alarm. He also suffered with frequent headaches that were so intense he started to need time off work, which he'd never taken before in the three years I had known him. I tried to be there for him, but I only had so much life left in me after night after night of my own misery. We inevitably became distant from each other, more like roommates than lovers. I tried to persuade James to get a doctor's appointment, but he was the type of guy to suffer in silence, and the more I nagged, the more stubborn he became. Then one afternoon after I came home from work and emotionlessly greeted him with a peck on the cheek as he sat hunched on the sofa after missing another day in the office, he announced, This isn't working, Adam. I stood silently for a moment, then meekly responded, I know. I love you, but it's just not working. Us in this house, something just feels... bad. I couldn't listen to it anymore. This house was all we'd scrimped and saved for, all we dreamt about and worked so hard for, for so long. I told him coldly that I'd see him at bedtime and retired upstairs to run myself a bath and wait out the hours before my next torment and solitude. Lying there submerged in the water, I contemplated suicide. Not for the first time either. Since the night terrors started and every night became like a living nightmare, I began to wish my life away just for some peace and rest. Without James in my life, my only light in this world, I knew my life wouldn't be worth living. I dared to glimpse at James's shaving razor and wondered whether I'd have the balls. That night I lay awake in perfect silence, keeping an eye on the man the whole time. Although I couldn't see his face from the hallway, I knew he was staring straight back. The hatred I felt for him was indescribable, but no matter how accustomed I had become to his nightly presence, the fear had diminished no less. I knew he meant us harm. There was no more hiding behind jokes between James and I. There was no James and I. Insidiously, the man had taken that away just as I knew he would eventually take away any remaining shred of my sanity. As I sighed inwardly in despair at my fractured marriage, I heard the unmistakable creak of our bedroom door as it slowly opened inwards. The towering, inky black mass stood in the doorway for a pause as my eyes struggled to comprehend what they were witnessing. This wasn't right. He only comes when I'm asleep and paralyzed. I haven't even nodded off yet, I'm wide awake. My mind raced. It was then that I realized with horror that I couldn't move. But when did that happen? I had been lying still for many hours without attempting to move, but I hadn't realized that I had been paralyzed. I was still awake. How was this possible? As I tried to will my limbs in motion, the man made his inevitable way over to our bed. Tony stirred from his sleep and locked eyes with the shadowy humanoid mass. Immediately he emitted a low growl and adopted a defensive stance, ears flat, back arched, tail low, fur standing on end. 
The man seemed to regard Toby's presence and the room was flooded with an overwhelming impression of rage, of intent to harm, and Tony at once fled. I laid in wait for my familiar fate, the feeling of wrists and knees alongside my vulnerable body, the cold breath permeating the air inches above my face. However, this time it wasn't me that the man had his sights set for. To my disbelief, my eyes followed his trajectory as he made his way over to James's bedside. A small sliver of moonlight escaped through the gap in our bedroom curtains, offering some amount of illumination to the shadow figure as he approached my husband's motionless form. I wanted to scream James's name in warning, although I knew it was futile, as it always was. My whole body betrayed me with stillness as I watched this malevolent force loom over my beloved James. I felt pitiful tears sting the corners of my eyes as I willed my limbs to act, to lash out. Adam. My breath caught in my throat as, to my disbelief, I heard my husband speak. Do you see it? In my periphery, I could just make out the impression of James's face, eyes wide with terror and filled with tears, his mouth agape with drool pooling at the corners. The coroners would say James died suddenly in the night of a brain aneurysm, a tragedy that no one could have predicted, but a natural death that probably caused him minimal pain and discomfort. He had simply slipped away in his sleep peacefully, but I knew the truth. As the man bore down on James, the light piercing through the curtains revealed his true visage, and my husband looked up in terror at his own face grinning back down at him. Every old acne scar, every dimple, every speckling of stubble peppered with gray. As James lay helpless, his doppelganger reached down with the same hands as his own, with matching fingernails bitten down to stubs, the same gold-plated wedding band, the same mole that he never bothered getting checked since it appeared about two years ago. As I watched him squeeze the life out of James, both my husband's faces turned to face me, one with pleading eyes that slowly became glassy and vacant, one with a wide grin that stretched impossibly wide from ear to ear. As James's last breath escaped his lips, his perverse likeness finally spoke, in a grim caricature of the voice of the man I'd loved. We'll be back for you soon, babe. Across the street there is a petite little blue house, white trim, picket fence. It's the cliché fairy tale home you read in the storybooks. I can see it through the bars of my window. The little old lady who lives there likes to sit in an old rocking chair and do various projects. I've watched her knit and crochet, sew patches onto clothing. There's this one old jacket she seems to be constantly fixing. It's a blue hoodie, but you wouldn't know by looking at it. There are so many patches and fixes that it's a collage of different colors and patterns. I've watched it change over the years as I studied her from the window of my room over the years. The little old lady, I never learned her name before she died, seemed quite lonely. As I went through my daily routine, walking through the lab, past test subjects in cages, reaching their arms through the bars to grasp at my shirt, I did my best to ignore them, not speaking a word. Talking had gotten harder the longer I had stayed there. As more and more parts were replaced, I seemed to lose myself. I sat on the operating table as the doctor picked up a scalpel. Miss Mercy, are you ready for today's session? He spoke, his voice like ice shards in my skin. He didn't wait for an answer, simply clicking the cold metal cuffs on my arms and legs. The strap that went around my waist and torso was next. The doctor says it's, so I can't be hurt, but I think it's, 
so I can't hurt them. I steadied my breathing as he scanned my limbs. Settling on my leg, he grasped my ankle and began to cut. I could feel every layer of flesh and muscle as they were precisely sliced through. I bit my tongue as the echoes of a scream built in my throat. No matter how many times they disconnected my limbs, removed and replaced them, the pain was difficult to get used to. It seemed he was simply disconnecting the joint this time as I felt the tendon break. I don't know why though, he's done this before. After he was done I was stitched back up with purple thread. The doctor liked to sew up my wounds with purple, I don't understand why, he just does it. As the blood is cleaned and the straps removed, I'm placed in a wheelchair and unceremoniously rolled back into my cell, wheels bumping against the wall. I crawled out of the chair as it was taken away and onto the stone slab that was my bed. I could hear the sound of a drill and a scream, loud and shrill down the hall. It sounded like M9 was on the table after me. I suppose my broken tendon would be replaced with his. As the minutes ticked by, the screams died down with quiet whimpers in its place. M9 was the newest addition, so new he didn't have a nickname yet. He was picked up after F8 died of blood loss. Our nicknames often relate to our number assigned. F8 was frequently called Fate. I've lived here the longest out of everyone. The doctor adds a mark next to our nameplate for every year we've been here. Mine has 18 notches, and I was brought here when I was two. My code is M3 or Mercy, I hate that name. It's something I've never been shown. It is foreign to us here at the sanctuary, as the doctor calls it. The door opened and I was unceremoniously pulled into the chair and wheeled to the table. A similar process to earlier procedures. Skin and muscles slicing and the gush of blood down my feet. The smell of iron filling the air so thick you could taste it on your tongue. As the doctor reconnected my tendon. I'm aware one of these days he will fail and then I'll become trash. He's pushed my body the furthest with his experiments. The way he phrases it, I'm his golden ticket to a Nobel Prize, whatever that means. The stitches were replaced and I was back laying in my cell in a matter of minutes. Same routine every day. Hours ticked by as screams and cries from the operating room came and went. I stared out the window. There was no doubt the old frail lady in the rocking chair couldn't hear the screams of my fellow prisoners. But there she sat. Sewing a new patch on that stupid hoodie, I felt something I hadn't in a long time. Rage. I had long since given up on feeling things, but this was different. The feeling burned in my chest. I hated the woman across the street for doing nothing to help the children locked in this godforsaken sanctuary. I hated the so-called doctor for what he did to me and everyone else in here. Furthermore, I looked at the door and for the first time in a long time wondered what it would be like to get out and see the world. Logic, however, told me that wasn't possible, but I couldn't help but imagine just how nice it would feel to have the doctor begging for the pain to stop on his operating table. My ears began to ring with what I could only imagine his screams might sound like. Oh, how I wanted to know to hear him beg scream the name he assigned me only to have it denied. I wanted so badly to dissect him and remove limbs and tendons. As my thoughts filled with mental images of blood and screams, I didn't notice the silence of the complex. No drills or screams filled the halls as the lights began to flicker, and a buzzing filled my ears. The bulb outside my room exploded and the buzzing stopped. However, I was now shrouded in darkness, barely able to see four feet in front of me. I attempted to stand, finding no pain in my ankle. Odd shouldn't be able to stand on it. I pressed onward to my door, finding the door unlocked. I couldn't help but smile. 
Maybe luck had shone on me for the very first time. I pushed the door open and stepped out into the hallway. The buzzing noise returned, but that only spurred me onward, like an encouraging voice. Walking down the hallway to the operating room, I looked over all the tools available and picked up the scalpel. Not my first choice, but I'm not a picky fella. The doctor was nowhere to be seen so far as I began my search of the building. The high-pitched whine in my ears faded and rose with an unknown tempo. I eventually found him in what looked to be a kitchen. I had never been in this particular room. He was sitting at a table reading a thick book that he placed down and looked up at me with a start. M3, what are you doing out of your room? I gave no response and simply walked towards him, picking up the book he had just set down. I slammed it into the side of his head with all the force I could muster. I hit his temple and dazed him long enough to hit him again, over and over until he fell unconscious. Dragging him to the operating room and up onto the table with newfound strength, strapping him down securely. As I did this, the other subjects decided to test the waters and open their doors. Some ran to find an exit, and others stood in the doors of their cell in pure disbelief. About five joined me in the operating room, eyes ablaze with rage and joy at seeing our torturer at our mercy. As we surrounded the table, his eyes flickered open. Confused at first, then realization dawned on him. He was trapped. H1 began to laugh, a haunting sound when said person is missing their tongue. She picked up the drill and powered it on. Their hands were shaky but determined as she dug the drill bit into his kneecap. The sound it made when the bone broke echoed throughout the room. The doctor writhes trying to get away from the pain but is unable to. I held up the scalpel in my hand to his left eye. He blinded mine after a failed attempt. So now it was his turn. An eye for an eye as they say. I dug the scalpel into the socket doing my best to avoid breaking the part of the eye, opting to pop it out and sever it from the optic nerve. He continued to scream as my cellmates went about their revenge. H1 handed Y7 the drill and picked up a knife at a nearby table, grabbing his jaw and holding it open, slicing his cheeks up his jaw, creating a crooked smile. She wasn't done, however she dug the knife deeper. The sound of metal on the bone as she tried to pry the joint away from his face was music to our ears. After a few moments, there was a loud crack and a guttural scream as the joint on the left side of his jaw disconnected. While she was doing this, I successfully removed the eye from the socket. It hung down the side of his face uselessly just before I sliced through the nerve. It fell down and onto the floor. I looked at it and picked it up, slicing it and letting the inside ooze out into what was left of his mouth. His eye that was left rolled back as the pain became too much puke bubbling up his throat out of his broken jaw. It seemed our fun was about to come to an unfortunately quick end. How boring. The light faded from his eyes and I backed away from the table. The others continued to mutilate his body. By the time they would be done, he would be unrecognizable. But I chose to wander away from the body, looking instead for a way out. Ragged clothes stained from blood. I eventually found it and pushed the heavy door open. The light of twilight coats the world in a soft orange hue. I looked across the street at the blue house. The patched hoodie was hung on the picket fence. It seemed almost like an offering as I walked toward the house. Picking up the jacket, it was huge compared to my thin body. As I pulled it over my head, relishing in the thick fabric, I walked up the path and stepped to the door to push it open. I wanted to ask the lady why she never helped us but the scene before me was enough to take the already few words I had.
The frail old lady whom I had watched over the years from my window was dead, hanging from the rafters, nails bloody as it seemed she tried to escape the rope that encased her neck. A black plastic mask was delicately placed on the table next to her hanging body. One large red eye and a blocky half-smile decorated one half of the mask. The other side looked almost like a replicate of a stained glass window. Different colors painted on. I realized there was no way to see through the stained glass side, but that was fine. I told myself that at least as I picked it up, pulled it over my face, and turned out of the house. I glanced at the mailbox as I passed. A single name was placed on it. It had to be the lady's last name. Hackett. What a nice last name to have. It has a nice ring, Mercy Hackett. Thank you for joining us on the Midnight Library. We hope that our three spine-tingling creepypastas have left you feeling suitably spooked and entertained. If you enjoyed our show, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating or review on your podcast app of choice. Your feedback helps us to improve and grow our audience, so we can continue to bring you the best in horror storytelling. Until next time, remember to keep an open mind and a steady heartbeat. The darkness may be lurking just around the corner, but with the Midnight Library as your guide, you're never alone in the shadows. <laughs>